you have a Bible, if you wouldn't mind turning to 1 Chronicles chapter 29, and we'll be looking at verses 10 to 22 today, and this will be our last message in the book of 1 Chronicles. And it really, I think it's a fitting passage to end on. It's a beautiful, beautiful passage. Verse 10 says this, Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, O Lord, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to thus offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners as our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow. There is no abiding. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here, offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts towards you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. Then David said to all the assembly, Bless the Lord your God. And all the assembly blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads and paid homage to the Lord and to the king. And they offered sacrifices to the Lord, and then on the next day offered burnt offerings to the Lord, a thousand bulls, a thousand rams, and a thousand lambs with their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. And they ate and drank before the Lord on that day with gladness. I've always been kind of fascinated by big buildings. I mean, it's one thing to build a house, and I mean, that, that's pretty incredible in, in, in its own right. But you think about these big buildings like, you know, the Key Bank Center or, you know, these ginormous buildings. I, I don't even know where you start to learn how to do things like that or, or how to build buildings like that. Uh, when I was in high school, I went to the chapel, um, which if you're not familiar, it's a local, very large church. Um, they used to be on North Forest when I went there. It was still kind of a mega church, but kind of a smaller mega church. And uh, when we started going there, they just started talking about kind of plans for moving into this new building. And I just remember kind of the anticipation of this new multi-million dollar facility, you know, with this, you know, bookstore and coffee bar and all, all this cool stuff. And I couldn't wait to enter for the first time. And it was just like the highlight of my whole year is going into this building and seeing this incredible uh, new church. When I was in seminary, I went to this church a few times. It was one of the largest churches in the country. It's called Southeast Christian Church. Um, and it was the most incredible church building I had ever been to before in my life. Um, they have about 20,000 people that attend each weekend. Um, and I think I have a picture of it here. It is, it's kind of like a mix of a key bank center, a luxury hotel, and a Starbucks all put together. I mean, you walk in there, and there, I think there's like a waterfall and this, you know, 
fan, these fancy stones and like this gourmet coffee house. It was like unbelievable, this church building. Right now, the you know, Bills fans are looking forward to the Bills Stadium that's going to be built. And uh, this, la- this last week, the renderings were put out for the Bills Stadium. And, and it looks really, really cool. I haven't been to a Bills game in, in several years, but uh, once the new stadium is there, like, I would really like to see this architectural wonder. Like, how do you create something that ginormous that holds 60,000 people? Uh, it's just incredible. And uh, you think about it, and, and mankind has the ability to create some pretty cool things. And you think back even to the past, and some of the greatest architectural wonders in the world today were actually created before the advent of modern technology. Uh, You think about the Colosseum, and there's so many different things that were created essentially uh, by hand. You think about the pyramids of Giza, um, these enormous structures that have endured for thousands and thousands of years that are just really elaborate on the inside as well. I mean, they're so elaborate that people have come up with kind of conspiracy theories that like the aliens created them or things like that because it's just they're so incredible, especially uh, being from that long ago. Uh, you have the Taj Mahal, which was created a few hundred years ago. It was created by uh, over 20,000 artisans and craftsmen engaged in, in the work of the Taj Mahal. It took them about 22 years to complete it, and it's just an incredible uh, building. Uh, there's the city of Petra, um, which seems like it would be a lot of work. It's basically a city that's built into a mountain, into rock. And they didn't have dynamite and things like that back then, so I don't even know how you get started with you know, just an, uh, a chisel and a hammer. And, and building a structure like that, it's just incredible. Uh, despite mankind's flaws, mankind has been able to create some things that are really, really cool. Uh, think about Disney World. You know, you go to Disney World, and it's essentially a man-made world. I mean, you have, you know, the, the ginormous castle, you have the fireworks, you have, you know, the details down to the garbage cans and the street signs and all of the rides and all the animation and stuff involved with that. You can't help but be kind of in awe and amazed at everything that man has done, man has created in that environment. Uh, I remember... Years ago, uh, me and my wife went to Montreal, and we visited this uh, basilica there. And uh, people had talked about how that was kind of the highlight, one of the highlights of Montreal. There wasn't a whole lot to do in Montreal. So we went to, to, to see it, and I think you had to pay like $5 to get in. And we're kind of debating, like, do we want to pay $5 to see a church? Like, I mean, we've seen a lot of churches. And we're like, well, we're here. I don't know if we'll ever even come back to Montreal uh, we might as well just do it. So we paid the five bucks or whatever it is, and we walk in to the door, and it was kind of like all kind of roped off so you couldn't see anything inside. And, but then you walk into the door, and I looked up to the front, and I just like stopped breathing. It was just the most incredible sight I'd ever seen. You can't even describe it. It was just so majestic how beautiful this church was. And you think about this kind of the architecture that mankind creates, and oftentimes things like this, like the Bill Stadium or Disney World or, or even this, this basilica, they were created to kind of induce a sense of awe or wonder. And you think back into the, the Bible times, and there were some things that were created in kind of a similar way that kind of produced awe and wonder. Uh, the first thing I think about is the Tower of Babel. 
Uh, in Genesis chapter 11, verse 4, says this, Consider, for example, the tower, uh, it says, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. So the people said, let's build a name for ourselves. Let's build something that we can be in awe of, that we can kind of worship, so to speak. And then there's the golden calf incident. Remember the story of the golden calf, how Moses was up on Mount Sinai receiving the law of God, and how uh, Moses um, kind of delayed in coming down. And uh, it took a, took a while to come down, and so what did they do? They gathered uh, jewelry together, and they built a golden calf. It's described in Exodus 32, 2-4. It says, And Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in their ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And so they collect the jewelry, bring it together, create this golden calf, say, this, these are your gods. Let us worship and be in awe of this golden calf. And I think we see in that passage in Exodus 32 the kind of the tendency of the human heart, which is to create and then to worship, to worship the created thing rather than the creator, which is the heart of idolatry. John Calvin in his Institutes said this, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols, that our hearts are a factory of idols. We have this tendency to make other things other than the true God and, and ascribe to them God's status, to put them in a place that they don't belong, to worship the created thing rather than the creator. But of course, that wasn't the way it was meant to be. And in this passage that we look at today, uh, we see something that's truly remarkable. It's a scene of faith and faithfulness, and I think kind of an anti-type of the Exodus story of the golden calf. Here we see something completely different. So David is about to die. He's about to pass the reins on to his son Solomon. And Solomon is, is tasked with constructing this temple for the Lord. And uh, in terms of an architectural wonder, this was probably an architectural wonder of the ancient world. Um, just the detail that was involved, the craftsmen that were used, and it, it was just incredible. They had hundreds or maybe even thousands of workers that came together down to the, most, the smallest details to create this temple. There was also an enormous amount of wealth that went into this temple. For example, David himself donated 3,000 talents of gold. Uh, 3,000 talents of gold would weigh about 225,000 pounds. Uh, just incredible the amount of wealth. Um, there was silver, bronze. There was also a collection that was taken by the people. And the people, uh, the, the people brought all of their uh, goods into the storehouse. And, uh, you know, you can imagine kind of the default human response, bringing together all of this wealth, 225,000 plus pounds of gold, and bringing that all together, kind of the default human uh, response of the heart is, wow, look at what we've done. Look at how wonderful this is. Look at how powerful and glorious we are. But in this passage, the response is quite different. David says this, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. 
And as we look at these words of David, they're words that you might ascribe to the temple. Wow, look at how amazing, look at how glorious, look at how powerful and majestic this new temple is. And yet David says it's not about the temple. Yes, the temple is going to be beautiful, it's going to be glorious, but it's not about the temple, it's about the God whom we worship at the temple. And so David understands a few things uh, about the creation of the temple. Number one, he he understands that the glory belongs to God. The temple, again, was going to be beautiful, and that beauty was not to be a substitute for God, but it was to point to God. The Israelites were not to enter into the temple and simply say, wow, look at this incredible temple. Look at how glorious this is. They were to say, look at how incredible this temple is. And if this temple is this incredible, how incredible must our God be? And so it wasn't just about the temple and about glorifying the temple. It was about how great their God was. But oftentimes, we tend to substitute the created thing for the creator. Uh, Theologian and pastor John Piper puts it this way. He says, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do uh, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it's a piece of land, a yoke, an oxen, and a wife. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. So idolatry happens when we worship the created thing rather than the creator. And so we think about that and we can make anything into an idol, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, whether it's a small thing or a large thing. And so we think about what's the answer to idolatry? And some people throughout the history of the church have kind of answered with the, the kind of the asceticism argument. And that is that if we're going to avoid idolatry, we need to kind of avoid the pleasures of the world. And so you see kind of the, like the desert fathers or um, different uh, monastic orders who maybe took a vow of poverty or a vow of silence, um, engaged in intense physical rituals. There was one, one individual who actually climbed up on a pole, lived on a pole for like 20 years to kind of show his devotion to Christ. And so that's kind of the one argument that if you're going to avoid idolatry, you're going to have to kind of avoid the pleasures of life. And of course, there are situations where that might be appropriate. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew, he said that if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Now, of course, he wasn't talking about literally taking a scalpel to your eye, but he was saying, like, do what's necessary to fight against sin. And so if it if it means avoiding something because you're going to make it your idol, so be it. You know, and Jesus, you know, there's cases in the scripture where Jesus calls like the rich young ruler. He says, come follow me, sell all that you have. But he didn't call everyone to sell everything they had. And so you think about that, think about the scriptures, and uh, God could have created a world that was kind of dull and monotonous, kind of an aesthetic world. But he didn't do that. He created a world where there's incredible joy, incredible variety, where you have hundreds of different kinds of food. You have thousands of different species of animals that inhabit our planet. 
You have diverse, you know, scenery, oceans and mountains, and sunsets. There's a lot that God created that's beautiful. He gave us relationships like the relationship of marriage and friendship. And so he could have created a dull and a boring world, but he didn't do that. He created a full, live, living, joyful world. And so I don't think the answer is just avoiding all pleasure, avoiding all joy. I think the answer is allowing those pleasures to point us to God. Not seeing them simply as an end of, in themselves, but pointing us to our God. And so when we see a beautiful sunset or we see a beautiful mountain, for example, we think, wow, how incredible. But we're also reminded of the steadfast love of God, how he's firm and steadfast, that his love is never failing, that his power is unending. And so the gifts of God are meant to point us to the goodness and glory of God. Psalm 19, 1 to 2 the psalmist writes, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So we can receive the gifts of God with joy and with gladness, being careful that as we do so, we don't allow them to become idols, ends and in themselves, but that they allow, we allow them to point us to our perfect, just, heavenly Father. So David recognized the glory belongs to God. It's not simply about the temple. He also recognizes that the sovereignty, the kingship, belongs to God as well. David not only had great wealth, but he had great authority and great power. He was well-respected, uh, unarguably the, the greatest king in Israel's history. He had thousands and thousands of people who adored him. He had a lot of wealth, a lot of power, a lot of strength, and you think about the ancient world, and you think about rulers and kings, and many times when a ruler or king had that much power, they were deified. You think about the pharaohs, you think about uh, the Roman emperors, and kings that kind of ascended to the role that David had, many times they taught that they were gods, that they were gods on earth. And so there might have been that temptation in David's mind, but, but he doesn't go there at all. He says this, for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head over all. He recognizes that just like God is worthy of all glory and honor, it's not about the temple, it's not about his kingdom either. He says, yours is the kingdom, yours is the glory, yours is the power. It's about your kingdom. And he recognizes that he's not simply the king, he's not the king of all the earth, that there is one king who's reigns in heaven, and that David's kingdom is just kind of a picture of the true king who reigns in justice and equity forever, who owns it all, that everything on earth belongs to God. He recognizes God's ownership. The late Bishop Edwin Hughes once delivered a sermon on God's ownership of everything. Afterwards, there was a wealthy person, businessman, who came to his church and it didn't sit well with him. And so he invited the pastor over to his ranch for lunch. He walked him through his elaborate gardens and woodlands and farm. And he said to the pastor, now, are you going to tell me that all this land doesn't belong to me? Bishop Hughes smiled and said this. He said, ask me that same question in a hundred years. God owns it all. And the quicker we realize that, the more peace that we'll have in our lives. 
But there's also an encouragement in there as well. That God is the king over every king. That at his word the nations melt. At his word the mountains move. And we serve that king. The king is worthy of all glory and honor. The king who is all powerful. And so there's nothing in this world that's beyond his control. We live in a crazy world. Crazy things happen every day. But God owns it all. We don't have to worry about what's going to happen in this life. Because we know our perfect Heavenly Father has us in the palm of His hand. We think about the needs that we have, and they're nothing to God. I mean, we think about the, the greatest needs that we could have, and they're nothing to God. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He's the king over every king. And so David recognizes that God owns it all. He is the king of all th- kings. To Him belongs the sovereignty. And he also recognizes something else that's interesting, and that is that joy is given to us. And you think about the things in life that bring us joy. God gave us his son. He's an all-powerful, all-glorious being who offers us a relationship with him. He's a perfect heavenly father, and uh, we can find delight and joy in knowing him and, and dwelling in his presence. And really, that's enough. We wouldn't need any more than that, but as a good, perfect Heavenly Father, He chooses to give us more. And He chooses as a perfect Heavenly Father to allow us to be like Him in that He gives us the opportunity to give. Because the nature of God is that God is a giving God, and He allows us to give back to Him and give to those around us. David says this, but who am I and what is my people that we should be able to thus offer willingly. And he goes on to talk about how mankind is just like a whisper. He's here and then gone, and how our lives are temporary. And yet God gives us the opportunity to give. I mean, you think about this, and it's really kind of crazy in a sense that God, the all-powerful being who created everything, who owns everything, who delivered Israel out of Egypt, who provided for them every step of the way, he's asking them to give him something. He's asking them to give him an offering. Of course, he doesn't need it. He could speak the word and cause 225,000 pounds of gold to be created. He doesn't need that. But he invites his people to give because it's a picture of who he is. Because he wants his people to be like him. A.W. Tozer put it this way. He said, I do not think I exaggerate when I say that some of us put our offering in the plate with a kind of triumphant bounce as much as to say, there, now God will feel better. I'm obliged to tell you that God does not need anything you have. He does not need a dime of your money. It's your own spiritual welfare at stake in such matters as these. You have the right to keep what you have all to yourself, but it will rust and decay and ultimately ruin you. God doesn't need our stuff. He can take care of himself, but he chooses to give us the opportunity to give. Because that's who God is, and he wants us to be like him. There's an article that was written a few years ago in the New York Times. Uh, it was titled, Love People and Not Pleasure. And uh, it was written by Arthur Brooks, and it tackles the idea of love from the perspective of happiness. And in the article, he talks about things that kind of are, are meant to kind of bring happiness. People think will bring happiness, things like, you know, maybe money or fame or um, a great job, a great relationship, Uh, Things that people think, okay, if I have this thing, I'm going to be happy. And then he talks about things that people think are going to bring sadness. You know, maybe it's an illness, 
Maybe it's being poor. Uh, maybe it's going through a hard breakup or divorce. And, you know, people have this mindset, if the good things outweigh the bad things, then you'll be happy. Like, if more good things happen to you than bad things, then you're going to be happy. But if you look at life and you even look at, you know, scientific studies, that's not the case at all. You know, you see people who are really rich and, and powerful and wealthy who commit suicide, people who win the lottery, who have nothing and are destitute. And then you have, on the other hand, people who um, maybe have a cancer diagnosis or are dealing with something really difficult, and yet their lives are filled with joy. And so it's not just about the good outweighs the bad. And so he goes further, and he suggests that the thing that brings people the most happiness is loving other people and living lives of kindness and generosity. And I think that's true, and God in his infinite wisdom allows us to love the people around us and to love him. And he gives us resources as tools to do so, as tools to love those around us. So this last week at Awana, our kids club, we did a collection for the Little Free Pantry, um, you know, which is out, outside in front of the church, and anyone can just kind of come and take whatever they want. And uh, so we were collecting cans, goods, perish, um, perish, uh, non-perishable goods. And you, know, you think about that, and I don't think any of the kids went to the grocery store and bought the food. But as parents, what we do is we take, you know, canned food, box of macaroni and cheese, we give it to our kids and say, here you go, let's give it to someone who's in need. And I think that's the same thing that God does for us. He gives us time, resources. He says, here, go bless somebody who's in need. Here, show who I am to the world around you. And so he gives us the opportunity to love, to love him, to love those around us, and he gives resources as the tool to do do so. And And David says in this passage that the people give it joyfully and willingly, freely. It's not about compulsion. It's not about, you know, them just being ordered to do so. They're freely and joyfully giving, and that's the only way that you can give in the way that honors God. Uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 9 says this, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God is able to make a grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. There's a, once a Presbyterian missionary uh, in the country of Ghana, and he told an interesting story. Um, he was serving among Scottish Presbyterians, and if you've ever been to a Presbyterian church, it's not always the case, but Presbyterians tend to be very, very reserved. Uh, especially Scottish Presbyterians. And so you won't see people, you know, kind of raising their hands or, you know, moving around or even having like, you know, a band like we have here. You know, it tends to be very reserved. And so the missionary talked about the Scottish church in Africa, and, uh, you know, that's kind of how the service was. It was very reserved, very quiet, very, you know, thought out, very deliberate, except for at one point, and that was when the offering was taken. When their offering was taken, everybody just went nuts. You know, it was in the front of the church, and they would just kind of dance, and there would be music playing, and they would just take their time going forward. And it literally would be the only time during the whole service that they would be smiling 
was when they had the opportunity to give. Maybe they understand something that we don't. The gift of giving where God gives us the gift of giving back to him. It's an incredible gift, something that God allows us to do to bring joy to our hearts, not only to his. So David offers these, the, David and the people offer these offerings to the Lord. And then the passage ends in a very interesting way. Sacrifices are made and I love the statement that's made in verse 28. It says, and they ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. They ate and drank before the Lord that day with great gladness. And really when it comes down to it, what we see in this passage is a picture of contentment and satisfaction in all that God is for them. They love God. They love God's people. And as believers in Christ, I think that this final, this final statement is kind of kind of typifies what we should be doing in our lives, kind of typifies the movement in our lives toward God, to eat and drink before the Lord with great gladness, to experience the great wonder and joy of knowing God, loving God with all of our hearts, and giving back to Him. But again, this isn't the typical human experience. It's refreshing to see, but throughout Israel's history, the tendency is usually to create and then to worship what was created. We see in this passage, this joyful passage, where there's worship, there's giving, there's joy, there's creation, and then there's worship again. And that cycle is to just repeat and repeat over and over again. But it's so easy to lose track of. It's so easy to turn to idols. Even things that are good things, but distract us from the main love that should be in our hearts. There's a famous church called the Plymouth Church in uh, New Brooklyn, New York. And uh, at one point, there was this pastor named Henry Ward Beecher, who was the pastor there. He was an incredible speaker, people who, uh, a speaker who many people came to listen to from all over, just very dynamic, very gifted. And so there was one Sunday morning where people came anticipating hearing from him, and yet his brother was speaking that day brother Thomas. And so Thomas came up to speak, and some people saw that Henry Ward Beecher wasn't preaching that day. They started heading for the exits. So Thomas got up, he raised his hand, and he said this, all who came here this morning to worship Henry Ward Beecher may leave now. All who came to worship the Lord may remain. I told you at the beginning how uh, when I was in high school, I went to this church called the chapel and how I looked forward to entering into this new building that they they were building. And uh, I wasn't just excited. I was almost like an evangelist for this. I I went and told all of my friends. I was like, I can't wait for this building to be built. Like, it's going to be so awesome and so incredible. And I told people how, how great my pastor was, how he was such a great speech, speaker, and how he had so much passion for the Lord. I loved my church so much. I loved that building. Then I went to seminary, and I left my church behind. I went to a lot of, you know, tried out a lot of different churches. There was none that was like my church. Some of that was, you know, in good ways. Some of it was in bad ways. But I didn't have my church anymore. And it was kind of a crisis for me. 
because I, I had this expectation about what Christianity was, and it was tied to my church experience. And looking back on that experience now, I realized I was more in my love with my church and that church building than I was with Jesus. I think back on that, and why was I telling people how great the church building was, how great the pastor was? Why wasn't I telling people how great Jesus is? But it's so easy to do. It's so easy to substitute even good things for the one thing that's worthy of our worship and honor and praise. Truth is, all the other gods will ultimately fail us. There's nothing else that can hold that weight. Only God, only Christ can hold that weight. So the question I'll leave with us is this. Are we living in the joy of our Father? Are we worshiping Him? Are we creating, giving for Him, but also acknowledging that everything that we have comes from His hand, that He's the only one worthy of all of our honor, praise, and worship? Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your love for us. Lord, I pray, as David prayed, that our hearts would be steadfast, that our hearts would be the same as the Israelites in this passage, loving God with joy and gladness, with freedom, that we would worship you in everything that we do, that we would do great things for you, that we would give to those around us, that we would create great things for you, but we would ultimately realize that all of those things come from your hand, that you own everything. But we thank you, Lord, that you've given us opportunities, you've given us resources, you've given us skills, you've given us time as tools to bless those around us and to bring joy to your heart and ours as well. Help us to be faithful with the things that you've given to us. Because we know as we do that, as we're faithful to you and find our delight in you, we'll live in peace and joy. In Christ's name I pray.